understand uh, how does this work? How does this look like? How do we fight for deep affection for God and an ongoing affection for God uh, is what this really becomes about in this series uh, headed through Thanksgiving. Fighting for relational connection, fighting for um, communion uh, can be hard for all of us to do. Uh, I remember years and years ago, I was a teenager, I was sitting in a church and they had the youth pastor get up and preach. Um, he was a great guy. Tom uh, was his name. And he was one of those guys pretty new at preaching. Uh, and so I remember the first sermon he preached in the church. It was, it was about eight minutes long. Um, and so he preached the same eight minutes about four times to make up the time. Um, and and it, was, it was fun to watch him grow uh, and, and just change as a minister and one Sunday, I'll never forget that he was preaching, it was a Sunday morning, uh, which was a unique opportunity for him, and his wife was sitting in the congregation. They were uh, pretty newly married. I think they'd only been married about a year or so. They had no children, and um, part of the way into the song service, this guy came in and sat down. There was pews in this church. He sat down next to uh, Tom's wife on the other side, so it was Tom, his wife, and then this guy none of us had ever seen before. It was a very, very small church. And when Tom got up to preach, he introduced him. And um, the whole time Tom was preaching, you could tell he was very distracted by this guy sitting there. And um, about, I don't know, halfway through the sermon, Tom just stopped his sermon. He said, I'm sorry for get a name out of the hat. Um, Stops his sermon in the middle and goes, Brian, I'm going to need you to scoot a little to the side. You're sitting a little too close to my wife. It's kind of a gasping moment in a Sunday morning sermon. <laughs> it's a little bit like, wow. And like everybody kind of like had that nervous chuckle. And it, Brian was like, oh, like kind of sat up. And about three quarters of the way through the sermon, Tom stopped again. And he's like, Brian, I'm going to need you to imagine the Holy Spirit sitting between you and my wife. And then I'm next to the Holy Spirit. So you have, it was only later we found out Brian had been her ex-boyfriend. And so what, for whatever reason, Tom was choosing in the middle of his sermon to do a little correction of that. It was one of the most awkward and, to be honest with you, hilarious moments I've experienced in, in church life. Um, Brian didn't visit again. I'm not sure why. I don't, you know. Um, but how do, we, how do we fight for these sorts of things? Solomon has this, uh, his wonderful book on, on marriage, Song of Songs, Song of Solomon, uh, which really, the Song of Songs is a cycle of seven arguments between a, a husband and wife and then making up from the arguments. That's, that's what the book is. And how do you resolve these conflicts and what do you do with them? Uh, and, and so it's an amazing book, but there comes this moment in the book uh, pretty early on. He puts words in the bride's mouth, and I, and I say that just because whether Sol we're not sure if Solomon was editing love letters uh, or if these were actual love letters between he and uh, his wife, one of his wives. Uh, we're not entirely sure how and what he was the source material here, uh, other than the fact that he is at least the editor of it. So he, he has these words in the wife's uh, language, and it happens in chapter 2, and she says, chase the little foxes out of the vineyard. And it's a fascinating poetical phrase, and because the vineyard in the book becomes this amazing symbol of a very safe celebratory place where grapes are grown to produce wine, which is this picture of celebration. If, if you've got enough time to harvest and to ferment them into wine, it shows a a kind of rest. Uh, Israel is at war right now. Uh, in a time of war, you don't take the opportunity for parties. You don't take the opportunity to harvest and then treasure that harvest and be able to ferment it into wine that you would celebrate. Uh, you just drink it right away or mix it very quickly because you're on the move, you're in battle. And so to have a vineyard was this picture of a safe place, a safe environment, a celebratory environment. And so when she says, catch the little foxes in the vineyard, it's a picture of trying to prevent conflicts, of trying to stop the things that can uh, pull apart our relationship. And, and so it's in marriage that way. 
that's what Tom was trying to do with Brian, like get away from my wife, right? And, and, but in our friendships, we do this. Things can creep in to our, any of our relationships and can slowly pull us apart, no matter what that relational construct might be. And that's true in our relationship with God as well. That there can be things that begin to encroach, that can contend to uh, make us, if we would use language from the book of Revelation, lose our first love. That can make us grow cold, that, that can make us lukewarm in our affections for Christ. And so when we talk about loving God well, we want to catch the little foxes that creep in to the safe space of our relationship with God and would spoil it and would do great damage. In the context of Song of Songs, it, it then becomes an understanding of our conflict is related, that this one conflict in chapter 2, is related to these little spoilers. Let's take care of that and then let's come back together again. And so it's an understanding even of these little spoilers, while they can be from the outside in our relationships, and there's just such depth there to understand relational connection. He says it can come from outside, but there's a confessional moment there. There is an understanding. We've let them in. It's our job to prevent them. We have this responsibility. I, I, I want us to understand this morning, we have a responsibility in our relationship with God to chase connection. And if we don't, it will be our natural bent to drift. Fixing our hearts on loving God is a daily battle for connection. It, it, it's, it's not something you can fix once a week. Um, I think if you're like anybody else that's a part of humanity that knows God, that is saved, you understand even this reality that frequently afflictions draw us closer to the side of Christ. Suffering drives us to him. We already know that in seasons of peace and rest can come the greatest threats. In seasons of uncomfortability. And so it's so difficult because uh, in seasons of uncomfortability, all we're doing is praying God make us comfortable, but frequently we're never nearer to the throne of God than in those seasons of uncomfortability. How do we... How do we fight for this daily connection? How do we understand this? Hearts full of love, as we learned last week, hearts full of a love for God is the best protection against any love for the world. I, I think it's important for us to understand that fighting against the little foxes, fighting against a love for the world is not enough, and it's not the same thing as building connection with God. Right? Like in our in our friendships and our relationships, we we can push against all the things that would oppose us, but if we're not also fighting for us, we won't be any more connected. And I think that this is frequently where conversations about the world go off the rails. It becomes all about what's out there rather than what's going on right here. And so while it's desperately important for us to understand texts like we even looked at last week in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, the other key text, I think, that we have to consider when we're chasing little foxes that would tend to spoil our relationship is found here in James chapter 4. And so in James chapter 4, let me just read to us verses 4 and 5. And um, much like we did last week in 1 John, I'm going to take some time and some effort uh, to, to center this contextually, but just for, for the sake of knowing where we're headed this morning, James 4, verses 4 through 5, he says it this way, and he puts it all in relational language. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you just, do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? And so we're going to have one purpose this morning. We're going to do two things to get to this purpose. Our purpose this morning is really to understand this truth, that fixing our hearts 
on loving God is a daily battle for connection. That's what our purpose is. That's what we're driving towards. That's where we want to land the plane, so to speak. Uh, that's our destination. Um, Bucky's is a great stop on the way, um, but it ain't the destination. If Bucky's is your destination, we need to have a conversation later. Um, if you haven't been to Bucky's, it is a quality stop. I'm not going to lie to you. It's very quality. The, the three meat sandwich is very pricey, but very delicious. But, but Bucky's is not the destination, right? So, so there's a stop. There's some stops on the way. This is our purpose. This is where we're headed. There's two things we're going to do to get there this morning. First of all, we want to understand, we want to understand how our love for God or our love for the world is framed in relational circles. That's the first thing we're going to do. How our love for God and our love for the world is framed in relational circles. And the second thing we're going to do then is we want to see in a clearer way what the little foxes are. We want to really understand what they are so we make sure that we're fighting against the right things. So with that in mind, that purpose and those two uh, ways or stop points to get there, let's first of all talk then a little bit about the book of James. Just helpfully remind ourselves and um, refresh our, our memory banks about who James is or maybe learn some new information about James and what we have going on. And I can kind of do this in a uh, picture way, panoramic, then we're going to zoom in a little closer and then zoom in a little tighter. A panoramic view of James. James, the book of James, the epistles of James, the letter from James, is probably the first book written in the New Testament, somewhere in the A.D. 50s or so. Uh, James is one of the younger brothers of Christ. Uh, we might think of him as the lead teaching elder in Jerusalem, at this point, uh, James does not get saved until after the resurrection. Uh, he didn't believe, and there's accounts in the Gospels of Jesus' brothers, uh, and he even had some sisters who were opposed to Jesus during his life and his ministry. Sometime after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, James is saved, um, perhaps at Pentecost even. Uh, and so pretty quickly, James is discipled by the other apostles, and probably by fact of the just the simple fact he'd grown up with Jesus. So he'd learned, heard lots of teaching. Now that the spirit is in him and he's a believer, it's all now real. And so James matures relatively quickly and he becomes this lead teaching elder in Jerusalem. By the time he's writing his letter, persecution has arrived. Uh, fierce uh, Jewish opposition and then Roman opposition has landed in Jerusalem and God has brought this persecution to scatter the church. Because as, as Christians are prone to do, we seek our comfortability. They're hanging out in Jerusalem. They're waiting for Jesus to come back. They want Jesus to come back, and they're all getting saved, and it's like, let's just stay right here. But God's mission was not for them to stay right there. He wanted them to go to the furthest reaches of the earth and spread the gospel, and they were not moving. They didn't want to go anywhere. It was comfortable. It was wonderful. Remember, people are selling things that they have to provide for those that don't have. And they get to hear the apostles preach and teach every week. And they're, they're hanging out in one another's homes. It's a wonderful environment. But God's like, you're not, you're not going anywhere. I need you to move. So persecution arrives. The church scatters. And the church is largely Jewish. There's some Gentiles, obviously, but largely Jewish. And they scatter. And when the church scatters, they go everywhere. Uh, records tell us they went as far south uh, as Egypt, as far east as what we would consider modern-day India, as far north as modern-day Turkey, uh, as far west as modern-day Spain. And so the church just, it just goes everywhere, and the gospel spreads. And as a result of the Pax Romana, the, the singular language and the travel system of the Roman government, uh, the gospel is able to go all over, really, the known world. We, we do understand, obviously, there were folks here in North America, South America, uh, Africa, clearly through the farther northern reaches, the barbarians, the Scythians. But in the known, uh, at their time, ancient modern world, the gospel spreads everywhere. It's so extensive that later you even have Paul writing the book of Romans because folks from this dispersion have gone back to Rome and shared the gospel. And so in the midst of this scattering and this persecution, James is concerned. It's, he's worried about his flock. He, he's one of the pastors of Jerusalem, and now they're all gone. And he's worried about them. And he knows they had to flee. He's not opposed to the fleeing. But James knows something about our human nature when we suffer. And when we suffer, the last thing in the world we want is more suffering. He knows these people are now going to be suddenly exposed to all kinds of cultures that previously they'd not had exposure to. They're going to be exposed to all kinds of false gods, false idols, cultural ideals, systems of thinking 
that they hadn't experienced before. And so when you take exposure to all these world systems that they have never seen before, and cultures that maybe the only time they'd encountered them is traveling merchants, when you take that truth and you combine it with our desire to not get hurt, what do you think the tendency is going to be? It's going to be to assimilate. Because the last thing in the world I want is more persecution. And so what do we do with that? Because it was clearly God's plan that they go all over the world. And Paul is going to teach us much later than James about what that looks like even specifically. But James understands they're going to end this spot. And when you're in a spot of suffering and tension, what do you start asking God? God, I don't know what to do. So James 1 even opens with what? If any of you lack wisdom, ask God. He says, I want you to start thinking rightly. And so as he writes James, this is kind of the big picture message to believers that have been now scattered abroad all over the world. If we zoom in a little tighter from that panoramic view, we can see a bigger picture message. It shouldn't surprise us that James then deals with the, the core truth of genuine faith. James is writing to the church, so believers... But the greatest entry point for error is to attack the gospel itself. And so that's exactly what has begun to happen. And what has begun to happen is the mindset that you can claim Jesus but not live like it. That faith, uh, we would think if we use Reformation language, um, faith alone, sola fide. But they use it in this kind of way that, that... more in a modern day, heretical way, once saved, always saved, in the sense that the way you live doesn't matter at all, that faith has no works, it produces no fruits. Why would you want us to do that? Because you're avoiding persecution then. Because now I can fully assimilate, and I don't have to act in any way that makes you mad. Most people don't care what you say as long as you don't change what you do. That's the problem. Act different, and that's what makes them mad, right? Um, some of the first jobs I got when I got hired, and my parents had certain guidelines, and we were not Sabbatarians. In other words, we did not follow, and I still don't believe this in the sense that, that Sunday is the modern-day Sabbath, i.e. that we need to follow the Old Testament guidelines regarding the Sabbath. And so I, I don't think it's a sin to work at times on the Sabbath. I don't think it's a sin to do certain things on Sundays. I don't think those are sinful. All things being equal, though, I want to be able to be with God's people on Sundays. And as a 15-year-old, I didn't need a job that was always going to take me away from that, always. So when I got hired, I was like, hey, just so you know, my schedule's this. I was a homeschool kid. I could work any time you need me, but I don't want to work on Sundays. I'll work any other time, open, close, but I don't want to work on Sundays so I can be at church. My parents wanted that guideline for me, so I'm 15. That's what I'm going to do. And the bosses were fine with that until two months into work. And I look at the schedule and I'm scheduled for Sundays. And I'm scheduled for like literally like every Sunday. And I went to them like, I remember, I, that, they didn't get mad till then. Most people don't care what we say as long as it doesn't change what we do. And so one of the errors that was creeping in was this, that you can say you're saved and you don't have to live it out. And so James is writing, he says, look, as you're scattered, as you're dealing with persecution, you need to understand this reality. You don't get to do whatever you want to do and still claim Jesus. Because faith produces fruit. To use James' language, if you have faith, it will result in works, actions, deeds. Tell me you have faith, show me your works then. And so that's the error James is trying to deal with. And so he has these things. If you were to study through the book of James, you start to see what are some of the fruits he's talking about. So one of them is the the way we respond to the word of God. So a believer, if you really believe in Jesus, when you hear the word, it should encourage you in righteousness, train you to think rightly about God, or convict you of sin, and all those should lead to change. When you receive the word, it should change you. If the word's not changing you, that's a you problem. True believers are changed by the word. We're made pure by the word. We're washed by the word. 
We're conformed to the image of Christ. And so he says it's going to find out in the response to the word. It'll, it'll respond to social distinctions. Now, what James is doing is he's picking on their problems. And so you have the whole rich, poor divide. Um, I'm sure that doesn't exist in modern-day Christianity at all. There's no class structure, right? Please, the, these, these problems, while they were first century, they are they're 2023, he says, this is not the way Christians should act. Why? Well, because we already understand. When you're saved, you love God, you love your neighbor. It's not I love God and I love my rich neighbor. I love God and I love my acceptable neighbor. I love God and I love the neighbor who's just like me. I love God and I love my neighbors. Because you now believe in Jesus. Uh, works are going to come out. Uh, you're going to develop self-control. You're going to start saying no to certain things. That's what self-control is. Honestly, at the end of the day, self-control is nothing more than saying no to something you want for something better. That's what it is. You know, next time you go and it's like, do I order a salad or do I order a hamburger? You know, if you're like two days after your doctor's appointment, you might order the salad. Every other day of the year, you're going burger all day long, right? You're like, I'll make up the difference somewhere else. Um, it's no, and, and so what is it? We're saying no to our desires because we're saying yes to something better. We're saying yes to Christ. Well, that develops. Self, that, that kind of spiritual self-control develops in a believer. The way you respond to the world. How do you interact then with this world you're scattered among? And then how does it flesh out in prayer? All these, when you look through James, are signposts of what it means to be a believer. That should feel very overlappy to those of you that were here last week about 1 John. Because it is. They're both kind of doing the same thing with a little bit different approach. Now, we're going to zoom in a little tighter here to James 4. But to get there, let me just show you the immediate context leading up here to James 4. So if you have your Bibles open again, look back in James chapter 3. He says something here pretty amazing back, um, and we're going to go to verse 11. He's starting to build a bridge. He's just finished talking about the tongue, but he says something very fascinating, James 3.11. And, and many of you are uh, well-schooled in the Bible. Some, some of you don't know this as well. That don't, please don't feel guilty if you don't, but some of you are going to recognize some similarity to language that you may have read in the Gospels. This is what James says, James 3.11. Does spring... Does a spring water source pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Now, some of you, they're like, that, that does seem eerily similar to who? To Jesus. When Jesus says things like, how will we know who they are? By their fruits works, you shall know them. What comes out of them? Look, I'm, you know me. I'm inner city Baltimore, west side. You know, I don't know farming. Uh, I'll never forget one time we took a youth group uh, from where I lived at up to a camp in Pennsylvania. And I was driving one of the 15 passenger vans. I got all these boys in the, in the van with me. We were having so much fun going up there. I love that these guys had like the greatest sense of humor in the world. Like our this church is this classic uh, white flight church kind of was happening on the west side of the city. Um, and so it was a very old uh, Southern Baptist church filled with white people, but they had a bus ministry. And so all the youth group were these African-American kids. And they were hilarious because the, the, this is one of those churches that uh, at Christmas they would do a um, Santa tree where you could like take a little Santa off and it had a kid on the back of it you could buy gifts for right? So these boys had went one week and they had found, I don't know where they found it, but they found all these little black Santas and they hung all these black Santas on the tree, which was, I thought was hilarious. Like there was a whole church meeting about it. It was like the funniest thing in the world. So that's who these guys are. So they're funny. And so I'm driving up to this camp in Pennsylvania and all of a sudden it got deathly quiet. I'm like, why is it so quiet? And they're all looking out the windows because they had literally never seen a cow in person before. And they just were amazed. And so, like, obviously, I like, we're city kids. How do I know what this is? How do I know what kind of tree it is? Like, there are people, some of you might even be this. Like, you could just look at a tree and be like, oh, that's an apple tree. Oh, that's a pear tree. Oh, that's a, I don't know. I don't know what I'm looking at. Look, if it's got all these little orange balls, I'm going to make a pretty legit guess. Beyond that, 
When I go apple picking this week, like I need the signs, Honeycrisp. There's some of you people, you're like, oh, that's a Honeycrisp. That's a Pink Lady. That's, I don't know what we're dealing with. How do you know? You don't know till you see the fruit. That's his point. That's what Jesus' point was. That's what James's point is. So now what James does out of that is he starts contrasting things, showing you two different kinds of fruits. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. In other words, if Jesus is in you, that's what ought to come out of you. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You can't love Jesus and operate this way, is what he's saying. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James is building this structure then. That helps us prepare to zoom in to James 4. He's clearly contextually then writing to scattered people, writing about how true salvation comes out of you. He's writing the heart of contrasting what this looks like, this concept of good fruit, bad fruit. And so it's like James and frequently the authors of the epistles, they do this. They imagine or they foresee what our questions would be. Because if you're anything like me and you read down through that list I just read, you would say, honestly, there are times I am not pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy. There's times I'm not. What do I do with that? And this is always the tension that we see. That on one level, there is an objective standard of when Jesus is in you, Jesus is going to come out of you. And there's always also this subjective reality that we're in growth process that way also. Look, we haven't arrived. You ain't arrived. As sweet and loving as you people are, you haven't arrived. You ain't got there yet. Me, I've gotten there. I'm just kidding. That's, that's like the furthest thing from the truth. But like, we haven't made it. So... What do we do with that tension? And James is just too pastoral. He can't help but address that. And so what he does in James 4 is he then talks about this fight that's in a believer. And he gives you the three enemies of the believer. The world, the flesh, and the devil. And he does it in order this way. The flesh, the world, then the devil. You see it in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? And in, in, in that verse, he is doing something. He is setting the stage to put all of this in a relational context. He's now going to use the way we relate to other believers and those around us to expose our relationship with God. James is not the first guy to do this. J Jesus does it when he says things like this. If you don't forgive others, you are not forgiven. Right? The way we relate to others does reveal our relationship with God. And so this is what he's doing. What causes wars, what quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions hedonize? It's, the, it's this Greek word, and, and you're more familiar with our English, English version, Anglicized version of this, of hedonism. Uh, your, your hedonai, your desires, your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or you just, do you suppose it is no to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
Notice what he says now in verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother judges his brother, speaks evil against the law. Now, I just want to, I wanted to point out verse 11 because this should help you when you study the Bible. Part of the job of a pastor is not just to tell you what the Bible says, but to teach you how to figure that out on your own as well. I don't want to just give you a fish. I want to teach you how to fish, right? Uh, if, I, if I'm going to say that Sunday is not enough, then part of my job is to help you from Monday through Saturday. Notice the language there that has everything to do with speaking, how we speak and what comes out of us. Where did we start? All the way back in chapter 3, verse 11, where he's talking about language. Those are bookend moments. So when you're studying the word and you see this bookend, you're like, oh, there's this bookend about speech. Now we have this other bookend about speech. He's telling you lots of this in the middle is all interconnected. That's what he's done here. That's what I'm trying tried to do for the last five minutes in the sermon is help us to understand these connections, even while we're zooming in tighter and tighter and tighter. So we're not dealing primarily with the flesh this morning. We're not dealing primarily with Satan this morning. We're dealing with this world that's all in the middle, but it's in the middle of all this conversation that's going on that's important for us to understand. And so with that background then, we can come to this fact of relational circles because Paul, James is using that as an illustration, and so I think that can help us understand that's what good illustrations do. They help you understand truths. If you shoot a bow, if you're into archery, uh, G3 is like really, 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 really good, right? Um, you know you have these concentric scoring circles. Obviously, you hit on the outside, it's not as good. You get to the bullseye, that's what you want. And so I want you to think in a concentric circle kind of way relationally because that's what James is doing. Uh, psychologists, for a long time, social scientists have understood that we have relational concentric circles. And one uh, researcher looked and actually tried to estimate or tried to do all these objective studies about how many people can we really manage in those circles all the way down. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's just the reality. And so he said, like, all the way on the outside, and, and, when he, and he put it in facial recognition. Have you ever been walking through a store and you've been like, man, I... I feel like I've seen them before. But you can't quite place where. They're on that outer circle. I went to uh, my kid's school uh, last year sometime and walked in and I see this secretary uh, in the guidance counselor's office and I'm like, I feel like I recognize her. And I just couldn't quite place it. And so I had a conversation and found out years before she had been at the sixth grade school that they had gone to and I'd seen her there. And that's just a kind of a distant kind of circle. But you zoom in. This is the why some of us have seasons with certain friendships and not with others. And, and Facebook messes all the... ...pictures, and so there's benefit. I'm not knocking it. It's, just, it's, it's good for what it does if you use it rightly. Which using it rightly is not forwarding messages. If you pray over this and send this to 10 people, Jesus will bless you. No, he won't. Um, they will steal your identity, and that's what happens. So don't, that's not good Facebook. Um, and so we have these circles, though, and they're concentric circles. And, and it's just an estimate, like really close, about five people and good friends, best friends, friends. And, and so how do we process through this? Well, James is doing something a little bit similar with this understanding of circles. And, and you could take it either way. Because he, he only has three categories, and his categories are enemy, friend, and married. Enemy, friend, and tight covenantal relationship, the tightest one that exists. And those are his circles. And he uses these to help us understand spiritually how we relate to the world, this great system we're living in, all these Jews are scattered into, that is a threat to their love of God, that is the little fox. And so we need to understand it that way. And so if you go back down your Bibles, James chapter 4, he gives us, he starts with this one, you adulterous people. And so this is spiritual adultery. This isn't physical adultery, this is spiritual. It's an imagery. It's imagery here. You adulterous people, and then he then gives us the next concentric. Do you know, not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And he tells us why this is so damaging. 
Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? And so what he's telling you is, hey, listen, if you know God, you love him because he has first loved you. And he has chased you. And he has made you his own. And so he wants, God desires this tight, affectionate, close love with you. Now, God desires that with us because he is God and he is good. But he also desires that, listen to me now, because that's our greatest good. This is not, as some have tried to make it, some warped, twisted thing. This is no more warped or twisted, and this is why this language is so helpful, than the relationship within a marriage where you want a singular focus. Spiritual adultery, we could define it this way. It's having legitimate needs or desires met outside of the boundaries of a consecrated relationship designed to meet those needs. It's saying that God has created us as, as imago Dei in the image of God. And we have this deep, long, and I think it was C.S. Lewis said that we're all born with a God-sized hole in our soul that only he can fulfill. We're all born with this longing to be seen, to be heard, to be known, to be loved, to be understood to be welcomed, to be safe. We're all born with this deep longing to be connected. And these are spiritual longings. Everything else that we feel that towards others are echoes of this already present deeper reality. They're shadows of a deeper reality of connection with a higher being, with God. This is why philosophical concepts like atheism and agnosticism don't exist outside of already established religious philosophies. Time to go a little deep here. You don't, they've never found a culture that as a culture untouched had no religious system and didn't believe in a higher power. They all believe in a higher power. This is debatable about which higher power. The only people who run around saying there is no higher power are those that are reacting against the already established norm that think that they're fighting against it. My point with that is this. We are created with this deep awareness. We're not alone, and we're not the ones most in control. There is a higher power. Now, we understand from a Christian mindset that that is God. That is Jesus Christ, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so we have these deep internal longings and needs and as believers we understand that God has met that and God says come in and God throws the robes around us prodigal children and he welcomes us in and he he adopts us who are orphans and he makes the murderers of his son joint heirs with his son like there is just a beautiful picture and and so there's so many relational images that God uses uh, of adoption of fatherhood he calls himself father from the beginning uh, and of marriage is used as a picture Jesus calls the church the bride of Christ. Imagine if I were to take Beth Ann out uh, to a restaurant she loved. Um, she always loves, lots of times she'll ask for California Dreaming at her birthday. Although now we found this uh, knockoff California Dreaming up in Chapin that is just as good and it's much closer. Um, so maybe she'll want that. Um, it would be like if I took her out to dinner, say it's anniversary dinner, and we're sitting there, and candlelight's flickering, and it's those romantic moments. And I look, gaze longingly in her eyes, and I say, Beth Ann, of all the women I love, I love you the most. <laughs> it wouldn't take a detective long to figure out who murdered me. <laughs> um, that's a bad moment. James is affirming the reality that spiritually there should be this communion with God that nothing intrudes upon. In verse 5, it's, it's interesting when he says, do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says? He earns jealously. You know, what's fascinating is he's not quoting a singular passage there. He's talking to the wealth of what scripture unveils for us. He's citing the jealous nature of God toward us as his bride. He's leaning on the concept of the closest sort of committed relationship that we can have. And so he says, if we're that connected to the world, we have abandoned, we have, we have done as the greatest damage you could do 
to the covenantal relationship. The next concentric circle then is this friendship. To be a friend of the world is to value the approval of and cherish a relationship with people or philosophies that point us away from God. It is this this word phileo. It's an association kind of love. But this association kind of love, the the way that's structured here is it's a lingering kind. It's a mutual give and take sort of friendship. It's not like if you just go to the store to pick up a gallon of milk and come home. It'd be like if you went to the store and lived there. It's a dwelling. It is an abiding. It's a remaining with. Why is it important to understand that distinction? Because he's... you. Moving to the middle of nowhere and living in a cabin by yourself doesn't remove you from the philosophical system of the world. It actually is worldly. Because you can't love your neighbor living in a cabin by yourself out in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to soak in it. If, if you go to some place, they got a hot tub, they got a timer. They say, don't be in there longer than a certain amount of time. This, this is, I'm going to remain in it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have fellowship with it. It's a give and take sort of relationship with you. I want to spend time with you. I want to know you and be known by you. Although it's not nearly as intimate as this covenantal relationship that would be adultery. It communicates far more than just an acquaintance or an awareness. And then the third circle is to be a spiritual enemy. This is a personal enemy as opposed to a national kind of enemy. This will become even more important further in the sermon to understand then that when we go through this world, there are enemies I have that you don't have. What do I mean by that? There are people on this planet right now who have intentionally and willfully sought to do me harm. They haven't done that to you. And there are people in your life that have intentionally sought to do you harm. They have willfully sought to damage your name, your reputation, your life. They've done that to you, but they haven't done that to me. There is a personalized nature to the enemy language that he's using here that is astoundingly important because what that's going to tell you is some of your little foxes are not my little foxes. Now, some we have in common, right? If a homicidal, sociopathic maniac walked into the church and wanted to kill us all, he's all of our enemies. We have a common enemy now. But then there are others that are just after you or just after me but maybe not after both of us at the same time it, it, there becomes a complexity to this that we'll have to understand more in this series later but there is a personalized nature that this person is out for you how do we understand an enemy i think a story that jesus tells a parable that he tells is most helpful in matthew chapter 13 he, he tells this parable to his disciples and it's a whole chapter about kingdom and he talks about a farmer, and a farmer one day, and I'm not sure there's any job that's harder than a farmer, but the, you, know, you wake up early, you toil all day, and you do that 12 months a year, right? Um, all of a sudden, it's not, it's, it, they're past harvest season. What do they do then? All the preventive maintenance on all their equipment, all the fence, but like it's just constant work. And this farmer one day has his servants come to him, and they say, um, Master, we're not sure how this happened, but in your wheat field, there's all these weeds. And he says... An enemy has come and sown the weeds among the wheat. Like another farmer was trying to figure out how do I do the greatest damage to this guy because he's my enemy. I want to hurt him. How do I hurt him the most? I don't hurt him the most by pulling up all of his wheat. I don't hurt him the most by making fun of him. The way I hurt him the most is by mixing in weeds with the wheat because how do you get rid of it? If you start tearing out the weeds, sometimes you're going to mess up. You might miss some. The weeds are constantly taking nutrients and and crowding out the wheat. They're damaging the harvest. And when the harvest comes, it's going to be so much harder because you're going to have to separate it. It just makes a mess. I haven't just caused him problems today. I've caused him problems the whole year by doing this. 
And to do that to someone that this is their livelihood, this is how they make, this is how they get by. Why is it when they make landmines, they make them to maim and not kill? Pack a little bit more explosive in them and you kill them every time. Why do they maim and not kill? Because if you kill, you've killed one soldier. If you maim, you've taken out three. The guy hurt and the two guys carrying him. That's enemy kind of thinking, isn't it? That's why taking uh, even <laughs> lots, of, lots of cultures have done this. If they use archery, bows and arrows, they'll dip the tips of the arrows in fecal matter. Because even if it's not a deadly shot, it's a bacteria shot. This is why my daughter is studying world history right now. And she learned about um, them throwing, catapulting dead bodies into cities under siege. To cause widespread infection and disease and to destroy. Like, this is enemy kind of thinking. How can I destroy this relationship? That's what he's saying. And so we have these concentric circles. The fact of the matter is that spiritual adultery, friendship with the world, and enemy of God's status is at the core antithetical to the gospel itself. And that's actually the point that James is making, right? Um, how do you have salt and fresh water? How do you have bad fruit and good fruit? You can't. He says at the core, for the Christian, for the person who knows and loves Jesus, you can't, you, you can't have spiritual adultery. You can't have friendship with the world. You can't be the enemy of God. And you can take that either way. When you have a tight relationship with God, you cannot be friends with the world, and you will be the enemy of the world. Like, it goes either direction. That's his point, these concentric relational circles. With that, then our first task this morning is done. Can I get to the other task done and the rest? Yeah. Because here's what we're left with. Then I better really know what the world is. I better really know what the little fox is because it's so dire. I once knew a man, godly man, good man, not just a godly man, but a good dad. And he took his son and his son's best friend out dove hunting in Wisconsin. And they were out dove hunting and he saw movement in his firing range. And when you do dove hunting, you have, you think of a clock. So like say 11 to two is his range. And he saw movement at about one o'clock. He went and he shot at the movement because it was just above the wheat field. And he shot his son's best friend in the head. Because his son's best friend hadn't obeyed and had gotten out of his lane. He saw the movement. He fired at the movement. He's a good dad. He was a good hunter. By God's grace, the bird shot, because he shot high thinking it was a dove that would be rising out. It did horrific, immediate damage. But the boy lived. He's fine. The man never, he literally went home that week, round up all of his guns, took them and sold them. And everyone hunting again. What happens if we shoot at the wrong thing? What happens if we don't understand what the little foxes are? And so what's left for us, our last task then is to ask, then what is the world? Because this is what he's saying. Cosmos is the world most frequently translated as world. The Greek term, cosmos, world. You could also there's one aeon, but that's not, we don't need to even take time for that. It means age. Biblically, it's categorized as one of three things. The world is used to reference the physical planet, this world, terra firma. Cosmos is translated to talk about people, for God so loved the world. And sometimes it's all people, and sometimes it's just people of a region. You might remember when Caesar, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to tax or to give a census to the what? The world. Was Caesar Augustus uh, doing a census for the people who lived in Egypt? No. It's a region. And so world cosmos can reference people globally or people locally. It's just, it's contextual. You've got to read it in the context to understand how is he using this word world. But it's also used to reference an evil system. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. King James, I love the translation, is better there, reasonable or normal worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Live in a system of thinking. 
that we can't fall in line with. And so it can be any one of these. Here's the problem we run into in Christian circles or in religious circles. It's when people confuse all three of them and make the same application to all of them. That's when you run into problems. There's an, I'm sorry to do this, but the, the, the group that's easiest to pick on with this is the Amish. Because that's, that's the clearest example that I could give you. They confuse it. They confuse physical planet with people with evil system and apply the same reaction to all of it. They have a complete misunderstanding of what is worldly and what is not. Within the Amish, there's varying degrees then of how they will remove themselves because they don't want to commit spiritual adultery. They don't want to have friendship. They don't want to be an enemy of God. So how do we respond to this? Do you know why Amish men have beards but not mustaches? It's not because they think chin strap beards are so cool. They have beards and not mustaches because in the early days when the Amish community as a sect, S-E-C-T, was growing and increasing, at the time, uh, men, it was very fashionable for men to have these very elaborate mustaches, particularly soldiers. Well, in their early days, the Amish and the other Mennonites in Europe were often persecuted by these guys. In addition to that, they were pacifists, so they didn't want to associate themselves with those who waged war, who literally made a career and got wealthy by being men of combat. And so they said, we'll grow beards but not mustaches, so no one will ever confuse us with being these warmongering kind of guys. So here we are hundreds of years later, and they still don't wear mustaches to not be worldly. They are confusing an evil system with people. This has led to all kinds of decisions that they make about private land ownership. No education past the eighth grade. How wide your hat brim can be. Whether you can have a phone in your house, in the barn, or in a special building you build just attached to the house. So you can say we don't have this worldly thing in our home. A quote from the Amish, interestingly, they do not play musical instruments. They're strictly forbidden in old order Amish communities because they're thought of as too worldly. Musical instruments are worldly because playing them elicits strong emotions. And it's a form of showing off or standing out by the person playing the instrument, which isn't in accordance with their philosophy of Amish humility. So at that point, just so you know, it doesn't matter that you read your Bible and you have all these praise. Praise God with the tambourine. Praise him with the drums. Praise him with the stringed instruments. doesn't matter that David is playing for the glory of God in an instrument. We're not going to have an instrument because an instrument brings emotions and it's going to result in that, so we're not going to do that. You think we're that far removed from that? There are people in this room who at times the TV got put in a garbage bag and put in the attic because it's worldly. Like somehow that's going to remove us. Um, I, went to, I worked at a camp where we told campers you could jump up and down but not side to side. Because that's worldly. Like this is, and we were not Amish. This is, a, this is what happens when you confuse. You shoot your son's friend. You're shooting the wrong things. Good intentions well-intentioned, you want to do what's right, but if you don't understand the authority of the word, you'll get it wrong, and guess what you'll end up getting bit by? The little foxes anyway. You've done nothing. You've actually only opened up yourself for greater harm. And so James and 1 John help us then. 1 John and James both tell us what is worldly. What is the world? It's, it's going to be that which is appealing to our lust of the flesh, our lust of the eyes, and pride of life. John does it very clearly, uses that language. James has done it because he builds through the passions, these heat and I at war in us, our desires. It's going to be something about it that is enticing this. It's in stark contrast to the love of God. You can't love that and love God at the same time. Whatever it is, you can't love it and love God at the same time. It's something that's not going to last. It's not eternal. 
And so let me ask you this. If we get to that point then, what is it and when is it that these things will all pass away? Because suddenly that's going to start to describe to us what we're really talking about here. Clothes, games, cars, certain jobs. Certain things will not exist in eternity. But you know what's really going to pass away? Our flesh. Desire is not a bad thing. Coveting is. Delighting in God's gifts is not a bad thing. Building your life around them is. Loving the gift more than the giver. And and so we start to realize there's a real complexity here that takes discernment and love and maturity. I think that one of the greatest dangers to the church, and I mean at Universal, but certainly then local, is well-intentioned but spiritually lazy people unwilling to do the hard work of examining their own life. Because what that leads you to is just give me a list then. Lists don't guard against little foxes. Lists are worse than that. They make you feel safe and you're really in great danger. What is this world then that we are called to hate? It is a system of Satan designed to appeal to our flesh and draw us from affection toward God. That's what it is. It's a system of Satan designed to appeal to our flesh and draw us from affection for God. And so we're going to have a lot of work to do to figure out what does 1 John tell us how the world interacts then with our lust of the flesh. How do I deal with them? How do I understand them in my own life, in my own heart? Because I want to love Jesus most. Fixing our hearts on loving God is a battle for connection. In Song of Solomon, you have these seven cycles of fights and then making up. It's all about how our affections with another person can become strained and then healed. God uses marriage language throughout the Bible to describe his relationship with covenant people. He describes Israel at one point as as a girl found in the desert that he plucked up out of her near death, cleaned her up, and made her a queen. That was Israel. He says, that's who you were, and I made you mine. He divorces Israel later because of her adultery. Her, her, she just severs their covenantal relationship. He calls the church his bride. He frequently uses this kind of intimate language because it's so obvious to all of us. We need to understand then the world and how Satan is using it to engage our flesh to woo people away from God. But coming at this from fear is not what's most helpful. Because you cannot love in fear. And so I would rather finish the last 90 seconds this way. If you look back down, what does he say in James chapter 4, verse 8? Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. You know, draw near to God in faith, it says in Hebrews 11. Draw near to God in confidence, it says in Hebrews 10. You ever messed up and you feel almost too ashamed to come to church? Okay, me and two others. I saw a couple of heads shaking. Right, right. Um, You ever so aware of your own frailty? You're like, how could God love me? He says, draw near in confidence because Christ is there and Christ is acquainted with griefs and sorrows. You draw near through Christ for mercy. I cannot gaze upon God in his pure holiness lest it would blind me and kill me, right? But so often in my life, when I'm aware of my own sinfulness, I want to hide from his gaze also. I want to craft fig leaves or get in bushes. His unflinching, unwavering gaze feels like too much. And yet he says, I can look and I can say, God, would you look on me now as your child 
but would you see Jesus? And he does. He says, draw near with delight in Isaiah 58. With joy, run to Christ. Joy over forgiveness and joy over boldness and joy over having been rescued and adopted and owned and loved and covenanted with so that I am his and he is mine and one day he will say, enter in. And draw near with our hearts. Father, I believe, help my unbelief. I love, help me love you more. I don't want us to go through this series with this negative mindset of, oh no, what am I going to be afraid of? I want you to be reminded of this. If you run to Christ, if you deepen your affection for Christ, guess what? You'll end up taking care of the little foxes in the process. Your hearts will bloom. And the love will go deeper and broader and more intimate with Christ. Because you were reminded you are loved. And we love him because he first loved us.